Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Downright Upright Show. I am your host, Philip Anthony. I'm so excited that you have chosen to join us today, and I hope you are all fantabulous. This podcast is the place to go to hear out loud and proud what Minnesotans are thinking to themselves. On each podcast, I will first be introducing our guests, sharing a short bio of their lives and careers, and ending with their professional opinions of the current events that influence all of our daily lives as Minnesotans and also as Americans. And today I am very excited to have my special guest today, uh, a brilliant author by the name of Adam J. Nikolai. Did I pronounce that right, Adam? You did. Okie dokie. And um, I have a little bio about Adam to start it off. He's a man familiar with deep horror hidden within the mundane. Monsters may frighten children, but adults fear the world's everyday omnipresent evils. The kidnapper waiting for our children at the bus stop, for example. The madness that makes us forget who we are and the inevitability of death. Adam is not here to scare you. You are already scared. I love that. He only wants to take your hand and hold it in the dark. So welcome, Adam. How are you today? I am good. Thank I'm you. so happy to have you. Um, thank you for I, having me on. Thank you. I, I um, did a deep dive on your work, and it just sounds so fantastic. And I, I really can't wait to hear what you have to say about these books. I have a list of them here. Um, maybe we should, let's just start with the, um, your early career and what motivated you to be an author. So when did you decide you uh, or realize you had a gift for the written word? And can you remember the first story, poem, or writing of any kind that you created? Well, I've always been really creative. Um, My mom really pushed me towards writing, or she was the one who always told me that I was really good at writing. But it wasn't like my first choice as a creative avenue. Um, But looking back at my childhood now, I can see that there were a lot of things that pointed at it. Um, like if you ask the, the first thing I wrote, probably the first thing that I can remember writing is in like, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade. I wrote like a choose your own adventure book on notebook paper. So it wasn't even just like a regular book. It was complicated. Like it was branching and you had to go different directions and make choices and stuff like that. Um, and then, and as far as like reading, it had been pretty obvious to the people around me uh, which direction I was going because I was reading, I was walking around with Stephen King's Tommyknockers in fourth grade. The book is like, you know, thick as my head. Um, and I would walk around with that all the time. Uh, and I read that whole thing, and that scared me half to death. So uh, love of horror from a young age, a lot of reading, a lot of writing. Yeah. Awesome. So I would like to go through some of the books that you wrote and maybe you can give us like a brief synopsis of what they're about and um sure you don't have to tell the don't tell the ending because we want our people out there to to buy the book and to uh, be fascinated and surprised so yeah so uh, let's start with alex because that's the one i i seem to see the most reviews on in online um according to um the Amazon review, it says, uh, a ghost of his dead son or visions brought on by psychosis. Can you explain what that means? And Yeah, so Ian Collins is the main character, and he loses his son. His son is kidnapped and killed. Um, and he, you know, is devastated by grief. Uh, his marriage is starting to fall apart. Um, he's living at home alone, and he starts seeing his son in the house. So, like, he'll come home from work, and his son is just playing in his bedroom. Or... Um, his son will talk to him and say things. And his son was five years old. So when I wrote Alex, um, the, the character Alex, the child, was modeled heavily off of the uh, child behavior that I witnessed in my life, which was my son's. So my son was about five. My wife read the book, and she said, I can't ever read that again. That was, that was Isaac. That was our son, like the mannerisms of Alex. Um, so when Alex appears, he always does the things that he did in life. He never does anything new. Um, and his dad drives his dad crazy. He only appears when Ian is alone, so he doesn't know if he's losing his mind. He can't talk to Alex in front of other people, but um, he can talk to him when he's home alone. So he wrestles with that throughout the book. Um, But Alex is interesting because it's not, and my son is 16 now, and I remember this when I wrote it too, like the ghost of my five-year-old son still haunts the halls of my house. 
you know, even though my son is 16, the child that he was is never coming back. So it kind of operates on two levels, you know. Right. You don't have to have a child of that age to understand the pain, or you don't have to lose a child to understand the pain of losing that child. Like, there's a special kind of a nostalgia, kind of bittersweetness to it. So, um, and I did some book clubs and stuff at the time, and people kind of picked up on that too. Right. So, um, does the do you um, indicate in the book um, whether it is psychosis or a vision, or 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 does the reader develop that on their own? Reader has to decide on their own. Um, the, the one thing that I'm that you'll find if you read the three of these books, which form kind of a series. I call it the Fallen Cradle series. It's not branded that way yet, but it will be at some point. And they're always about uh, parent-child relationships, right? Alex is the first one. Uh, the second one was Rebecca. And both of them kind of have this theme of um, the parent doesn't know if they're losing their mind or not. Alex um, kind of leans towards one resolution to that question. Rebecca kind of leans towards the other resolution to that question, but it's not fully resolved in either of the books. Like either one you could read and based on what you read, you can decide if things were real or not. Right, oh wow. So on the second book, Rebecca, um, it's about a tortured young lesbian mother's mind either ends in unspeakable horror for her infant child or triumph of a mother's love over darkness. Can you explain what, what, what that that one is very haunting to me. So, well, it's it's about postpartum depression. So, oh, okay, if the, I if, got it. If the first book was about like my son, the second book is about you know when when my baby daughter was born. Um, and it not was she the oldest, the daughter, or your son was older? Uh, my son was first. He was the first. Okay, born. okay, yeah. And my daughter was born two and a half years later. Um, and my daughter no longer identifies as female. My daughter goes by they, them now. So, okay. um, but I, when I'm referring to her as a baby, you know, in our minds at that time, she was a baby. So depending on when we're talking past or present tense, or we're talking about Rebecca, I may switch up the pronouns, but just so people understand what's going and on. And how there. old is uh, your daughter now? Um, Rydia is 13 now. Wow. Okay. Yep. And did she, um, I don't know if, if you want to say this. Did she read the book, or do you allow her to read the book? Rydia or? did read the book, actually. Oh, okay, um, what did she think of it? Um, well, they wanted to read. They wanted to read all of my books. They've taken like a real interest, and Rydia has an interest in writing uh, too, which is really cool. Like, I would love to see them go down that path. Um, but they loved it. Um, part of the thing is, um, it's hard to find a good lesbian love story. Um, oh yeah, in like popular media. Yes. And I was like, well, I wrote one, you know, why, why don't you read it? Now it's a horror story and it's about depression. Um, and my child was struggling heavily with depression at that time too. But I was like, you know, my philosophy is we don't get away from this stuff by running away from it. We have to kind of dive into it and recognize it for what it is, tackle it head on, understand that we are not alone. We're not the only ones that have these feelings. You know, Rebecca goes to some really dark places and I want to clarify that, um, I didn't have postpartum depression. Um, well, I, I obviously didn't, but I didn't have uh, like a, a, a surge of depression when Rydia was born. Um, my wife, um, you know, may or may not have, but it's, it's not necessarily based on anything that we experienced firsthand. It was more like things I could imagine happening in that space, like particularly waking up at one in the morning, going night after night after night, not getting enough sleep. It drives you a little out of your mind. Um, and particularly some of those mornings with Rydia, I would remember and realize that my mom was a single mother and just try to imagine going through that alone. And yeah, I, mine it, was too as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it, it made me profoundly grateful for my wife and the fact that I was there to support her and she was there to support me and we could get through it together um, and profoundly grateful to my mom. Um, and so, and I wanted to write about that. Rebecca is also my only book that came about partially from a dream. I had a dream. About, really? Yes. About like a, a, a man or like an entity that was just like dark shadows that showed right. up at a door and was, there was a woman, um, a young woman who was like terrified of him, um, and didn't want to let him in, but knew that she had to let him in. Um, and there was more to the dream, but that was just kind of like the theme and the feeling that informed it. Wow. So I uh, I was raised by a single mother. My dad was um, well. I, I I don't really discuss it very much. My dad was killed when I was very young. I was four, and um, 
and then I, growing up without a dad was very hard for a young boy, uh, especially in the, in the 70s when I was growing up. Yeah. And then, um, and I understand what your daughter is going through, especially because um, coming out is not easy. You have, you right. need a support group. I didn't have, which I didn't have. Yeah. And um, it's, is, is she today, um, does she have a support group other than, of course, her parents that she is able to, um, how do I say it, uh, talk to, the, talk to, with uh, to talk about the problems uh, of coming out or, or actually being a, a trans uh, uh, person in this society? Yeah, I, I would say they do. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail about it because it's their personal sure, life. Sure, absolutely. But yeah, yeah, I do think they feel much more supported um, than we were worried they would feel when we first found out. I think today, though, uh, kids are a lot more accepting than they were back in the day. I didn't really have that. So, yeah, like I, I have a little anecdote about that. My son was talking about there's kids in his class that talk all the time and it drives him nuts and there's two kids that he can't stand and they were like arguing and talking while he was trying to work and one of them threw like gay as a slur at the other one and then the other one was like said something about it and then the first kid was like, no, I'm just kidding. If you were gay, I'd support you. Just like casually yeah. um, on the tail of this, you know, insulting banter. Right. Um, and that's like, I don't think that would have happened when I was in school the yeah. same way. Well, we had we had a different word that was used in the 70s, which is uh, begins with an F. Yeah. And, and actually, I want to I want to touch on that before we move off of Alex entirely. Uh, when I wrote Alex, it was 2011. Um, and I made some bad choices in that book. I'm really proud of the book overall, but it has two instances of um, two characters that are bantering, and they, they do kind of the same thing. Um, and they use uh, the N-word, and they use the F-slur at different times with each other. They don't do it in a malicious way, um, but it reading it today, it, it, it's awful. Um, and I was able to go back. I have some control over it since I published the book myself. Um, and I took out the instances of the N-word and replaced them with something else. I don't remember what I did exactly. Um, but the other day I was listening to the audiobook because the audiobook uh, rights are expiring at the end of this year and I may need to redo the audiobook myself. And I didn't even remember or realize that the F-slur is in there too. Uh, and it really, like when it happened, it just made me, my head whipped around. I was like, that's atrocious. Um, and so as of this moment, that is still in there because I just recently became aware of it. And I can't edit the audiobook, um, but as soon as I can, I intend to, um, and well, it's just... If I can interrupt you, I, yeah. I think that's fabulous that you realized that, you know, you, you, have, a, you have a clean heart, you have a clean soul, because peop, there are people out there that wouldn't have even said anything to that degree. You would, you know, don't leave it in there, it's, it's just the way it is. But you understand the pain that those words cause, and I commend you for for coming out to the people and saying that you know I I um, I think those words are hurtful, and um, I want to correct something. So I want to thank you personally because I think that's amazing. Because well, there's that. a lot of people today that they use those words. I mean, if they're not around an LGBT person or a black person or a Latino or whatever, they feel they have a carte blanche to use those words and yep. uh, and they don't think twice about, oh, I should never said that. But you're actually coming forward and saying this is unacceptable and I'm, I want to change it. So thank you for that. I just want to let you know that. Well, I appreciate that. You're welcome. Look, could we go on to Todd? Yeah. Uh, you want to try uh, talk about that one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so the, actually the three books taken as a whole kind of, um, if you read them, they kind of describe my journey of belief in my life. Um, I was raised evangelical fundamentalist. Um, oh boy, really? I woke every morning wondering if the rapture had happened yet. <laughs> I, it's been happening since I was a little kid. Right? That's I not love happening that. fast enough for me. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it, it, was a, it was a scary way to live. Yeah. Um, and it really screwed me up in a number of ways um, that I've been kind of working through throughout my entire adult life. Um, and the end result for me was atheism. It doesn't have to be for everybody. Um, I don't think, you know, like if you're not an atheist, you're a fool or anything like that. There are militant right. atheists out there. I'm not one of them. 
Um, how, how, I have a quick question. Why not agnosticism? Why, why did you choose atheism? Because isn't agnosticism kind of like you don't, you don't know really sure. know and it's not mm -hmm. important to me kind of thing? So, right? I mean, to me, atheism is I believe in God or I don't. And I don't, I don't believe in God. I, I don't see the evidence for God. I think um, the sources of wonder and beauty and amazement in our life um, are explained are explained period like right. like we know where they come from we know why the sunrise is beautiful we know how we got here through evolution and in my mind those explanations are more breathtaking and more incredible um than believing in a person who just waved their hands and made it happen anyway mm -hmm. um like there's kind of a moment when when you become like i've, I've heard a lot of people say this who become more of a, a humanist or an atheist and you're leaving religion when you kind of realize this world which you were raised to believe is just temporary, just a thing to get through so that you can get to the afterlife and you just have to keep your head down and do the best you can, it is not awful. It's not a purgatory. It's incredible. The fact that we're here, that, that the cosmic dice rolled the way they did to give us a planet that can sustain life and sustain our life and create such a beauty and uh, such an amazing world is it's just breathtaking. It's fascinating to yeah. me, yes. And, and, I, and we don't have answers either. I mean, nobody really... See, I um, I grew up Catholic, uh, and I remember one day my mom said, "Oh well, you know the Pope said that um, we don't have we are allowed to eat meat on Fridays now," oh. and I kind of that kind of was jarring to me because right. I'm thinking, did, did did God like speak to the Pope and tell him that? Was this a universal truth or not? Or, or yes, so I I, I don't know I. Um, Anyway, and, and then being gay was didn't help either, so yeah, they but. kind of moved me away from the Catholic Church. Anyway, I wanted to go back to Todd. Um, yeah. Everyone on Earth vanishes now. Alan and son Todd go on, on a struggle to survive. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so basically um, Alan's outside in the front yard minding his own business and a car crashes in his yard. There's no one driving it, and then he hears cars crashing all over the neighborhood. That's how the book starts. He runs inside wow. to look for so his wife. So there was nobody in the car. It, no. It, how did it get there? Well, there are empty clothes out? in the car. So in other words, this is basically, Todd is kind of an atheist take on a rapture story, is kind of what oh, it is. Oh, I got it's it. Like, it's right. like Alan and Todd are the only two people left on the planet, they, mm -hmm. and they don't know why everyone vanished. Um, so it's kind of like tapping into that horror that I had about the rapture when I was growing up yeah. and exploring it. But the other big thing it does is I wrote Todd... After, fully after my conversion to atheism. When I said the three books tell a story, you can kind of see my process as I go through. Like book two is my I'm Angry Against Religion uh, book, Rebecca, right. very much like indicts Christianity. And then book three, or certain brands of Christianity, I should say. And then book three is when I had accepted atheism. I had accepted that I don't believe in God anymore. And I was reckoning with what that meant. Like the fact that there's no afterlife, the fact that when we die, we're done. If I believe that, what, what does that really mean? Because it can be astoundingly depressing if you've spent your entire life believing that bad people get their due when they die. And you know, you don't have to worry about death because there's a place that you go. What does it mean if those things are no longer true? And I had to wrestle with those things and it was extremely depressing. And Todd is the book that was my catharsis to get through it. Um, and the reason is because when these two people are the only people left on Earth, there's basically they become aware that there's like some other entity out there that did this, that has some malicious plan for the world. And they don't know exactly what it is, but there's basically this blue star that's drawing closer to the Earth, and they can see it at night. Mm -hmm. um, and so they know it's coming, and that's you know an analogy for death. They know death is coming, and. How do you handle that? What do you do with that? You know, the main character is another another theme of my Fallen Cradle books is the main characters are usually struggling with some kind of mental illness. Um, Alan is is extremely depressed, um, and he has he has chronic depression, and he has bouts of it that he works through. And to have chronic depression and be in this situation is you know really bumps it to the next level. But ultimately, he realizes that he still has to care for his son no matter what else is going on, even if they're the only two people on the earth, if that's his meaning for his life, then that's what it is. Um, and through the course of things, they find 
that there is still meaning in life. The meaning is in the small moments, like all the small moments. Right. Like when they take a break and go swimming, when they he pretends to do trick-or-treating at Target because it's Halloween, and right. even if it's just us two, we're going to do it. Um, like uh, when things get really bad, uh, they have... They find an RV that has like a solar power, you know, so they're able to like watch movies and stuff and they just crank it up and, you know, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic novel, but it's very different from your typical PA type novel in that the characters are normal. They're trying to find meaning in life. They're not preppers, you know, they don't have crops laid in. Um, survival is not really the problem. Wanting to survive is the problem. Right. Um, and so it's kind of a different take on it, which your viewers have liked too. And religion, when you brought that up, uh, I find that fascinating because uh, if you look at the news today, and I'm sure you, you do. I do. Um, there is a party. I will, it will remain nameless. While you're talking, Let maybe. people figure it out. <laughs> um, that be- wants to go and become a theocracy, make the United States a theocracy, basically. Mm-hmm. Women don't have the right to do what they want with their own body. Uh, certain people can't marry. Um, you have to be able to pray the, your own prayer, you know, ir- you know, regardless about you know, other religions that are around you. you right. This is what you. What is your opinion of that? Like, uh, that must be irritating to you because it's, it's mortally terrifying to me. I, 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 I don't want to live in the country that they want to create. Yeah, um, I, I could see that. Yeah, because your books are are, are are basically talking about freedom, about your own choices in life, and our country's be- becoming based on a book rather than on personal freedoms. Mm-hmm. So the party of personal freedom is not the party of personal freedom, is it? Not even based on the book uh, entirely, based on the book selectively, based on, like you were saying about the Pope, based on whatever is, you know, Donald Trump happens to say that week is right. Um, you know, the Bible says a lot of different things, a lot of which are contradictory, um, and they're picking and choosing the pieces that, that they want to see. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it does... I don't think that truly that's the country America is. I think those people are in the minority that are trying to convert this country into a theocracy. And I feel like there is a point where people who normally live their lives and do their own business and don't follow the news and you know don't care so much, like those people, their day-to-day existences are about to bump up against the reality of what this movement is trying to accomplish in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point... I think we're going to see kind of a, a massive pushback. Now, whether that's going to be good for the country, I don't know. Like, what kind of form that pushback takes, I don't know. Like, if you shut down democracy, you shut down, like, the, out, the, the outlet for that sort of pushback is supposed to be the ballot box. That's how this country is made. So when they go and they specifically try to jam that valve, right. uh, then that pressure is just gonna build. Um, And it's going to explode one way or another. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I don't think most people in this country want to live in the country they want to make either. Um, Well, you know, I uh, personally, I feel we have to also recognize there are religions like uh, certain um, parts of the Lutheran religion and Presbyterian and Episcopalian, I love to pronounce that word, um, where they marry gays, they welcome gays, they love the LGBT community, they believe in Jesus Christ and, um, you know, and the whole, the whole story of Christianity, but they don't, I guess they, I guess I would call it Christianity without the toxicity. Yeah. Uh, What do you feel about that? I think that's great. Um, I, like I said, I don't, I think the most important thing to making a country like America work is that people stop telling other people what to do. Bingo. And what to yep. believe. Um, I, I don't even have a problem with people believing the way my grandmother did, uh, this evangelical fundamentalism. Um, I want to emphasize that was not my mom's religion, that was my grandma's. Uh, but either way, I don't have a problem with people believing that as long as they don't try to make me live by their rules. That's that's the whole ballgame. Yeah, I actually had somebody tell me recently, and um, and this this didn't bother me really, Adam, because they said um, they were evangelical, and they said I'm I'm going to pray for you, but I don't wish any harm to you. I'm going to pray that whatever you decisions you make in your life, 
um, are the right ones. And, 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 and my belief is that it guides you to, to, in the right direction. And that didn't bother me for some reason, because even though they were very, uh, you know, like, you know, Jesus doesn't want you to do this, whatever, but they, they did say they were praying that I would, not in a, I guess what I'm saying is it, it, it seemed positive. Like, I don't hate you, you're going to go to hell, that kind of thing kind of would bother me. Mm-hmm. But it was like, whatever you choose to do, I hope it's the right thing for you. What do you think of that? Uh, that still bothers me. Oh, does it? It does okay. because I didn't ask your opinion. I, I don't need to know. Well, in that respect, um, I agree. Yes. I, I don't need to know that you're going to pray about me. Um, I don't think you'd be telling me that unless um, you wanted me to think about what you're saying and try and interpret what it meant. Right. Um, my, I had a day, and, and I have trouble being quiet now when people do things like that to me. And one of the things that like really bothers me, I did this a few years ago before COVID. We were leaving the state fair, um, in the Minnesota State Fair, and I don't know. Uh, maybe some of your listeners were there that day, but there was a guy out on the corner with like not a bullhorn, but like a whole speaker set up, a massive like speaker so that he, and he had a microphone and oh, yeah? he was basically proselytizing um, on the corner. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody could hear it. It was coming through loud and clear. And it was, it, it was the kind of hateful proselytizing okay. that we don't really need to hear. And frankly, even if it's not, I don't think you need to be doing it on the street corner. But the thing is, um, it was a public square, literally a public square. We were coming out of Minnesota State Fair, and I screamed, God's not real, at the top of my lungs. My wife was not impressed. Um, But I felt like I couldn't just sit there while somebody... That's dystopian. Sitting on the corner, that's like something you'd see in a horror movie about a dystopian future. Mm -hmm. With loudspeakers blaring about, you need to believe in God, you're going to hell, all of this... And as long as I still had a freedom of speech, I intended to use it. Yeah, they do, they do that. Um, there are people that do that at Pride as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Pride in, in um, Minneapolis. They, um, in Loring Park, they have people that, I think their motivation is, is, is toxic. It's not, exactly. they're not there to save you, in my opinion. I mean, they're, well, they want to hurt your feelings. They want to. Mm-hmm make you feel terrible about yourself. And I don't understand and that. And scare you. Don't underestimate, scare you. Yeah, scare yeah, you. And make exactly. you feel that you're less of a human. Absolutely. You know, that you're this creature. And, um, and you know, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, nobody has the option when they're born to check a box of what sexuality or what, you know, whether, they want to, or that, whether they're in the right body or not. That's mm-hmm. not up to you. Right. You know, it's it's it, it it's inherent in you. And until people realize that we're going to have problems, you know, and um, anyway, um, could we look, we move on to the next book to the, the last one on my list here? It's uh, a season of rendings. Is that it? So a season of rendings is book two of my fantasy series, which is currently three books long. So oh. the next book would actually be Children of a Broken oh, Sky. Oh, Children of a Broken Sky. Yep. You're right. I made a mistake. I would hope so. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, Children okay. of a Broken Sky, and then it's a season of rendings, and then um, I think it's called Of Dark Things Waking? Is of that? Dark Things Waking. Okay, yeah. so I got that. And, and those are a trilogy, right? Um, or, they're the first three books of what should be a six-book series when it's all said and done. Oh, so you're going to be writing a fourth one? I've got 12,000-ish words in on book four, um, which is probably going to clock in around 200K, so 12,000 is not much. Um, but... Um, yeah, the plan is to finish it. Um, it's kind of on hiatus. I mean, when George R. R. Martin finishes his next book, I'll feel some pressure to finish mine. So, <laughs> okay. um, the, I mean, the interesting thing is the fantasy books, I mean, they kind of dovetail with the themes of my other books because it is about a church and it specifically, it's, it's like, it's an atheist take on what a fantasy world would look like if God was real. Um, like one of the things that would convince me God was real is if I could pray for a miracle and God would be like, I got your back and it would happen. So in the fantasy book, that happens. Because right? people have asked me, like, um, do you pray? Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, I did. And sometimes the prayers were answered, and sometimes they, were, they weren't answered. So uh, if prayer is supposed to work, isn't it supposed to work all the time? I mean, I don't know. That's, that was another thing that bothered me about prayer. Although I, I, I think I use positive thinking more than prayer. I think I kind of think that if you send out into the ether all this good energy, maybe 
that would work because I believe in consciousness. I believe in stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, what do you think about that? Um, I think you know. Well, with the when you're talking about prayer and sometimes answered and sometimes not, the thing that's always interesting to me is what if you have two people praying for opposite things, like literally opposite. <laughs> I, that's things. a good point. Yeah. And it's a planet of seven billion people. That's happening. All right. Yeah. So, and in these fantasy <laughs> books, um, it's it, there's an old church that kind of you know ran everything. But now there's like this new church that's overthrowing it. And these two sides are both praying to ostensibly the same God. I mean, the God's name is Akir. They both pray to Akir. They both work right. miracles. They're both able to heal people. They're both able, able to like touch people and, and burn them or call down fire. So like one of the themes is why is God working with both sides? Why is he answering both priests' miracles? You know, um, why? Like the main Gosh, character that's, has... That's profound. Yeah, and the main <laughs> character has a serious crisis of faith around this, even though she's she's the progenitor of this new church, and she's kind uh -huh. of bringing it um, to power. So, um, and that's a theme that's explored throughout and answered by the end. But again, like I said, a six book series. So, oh, well, I I hope our listeners, you know, go to Amazon or. Are your books available in, in, in paperback form? Yeah. And um, my books are all on Amazon. You can order them there, ebook or paperback. Um, and then Alex is available in audiobook too. Audiobook, um, right? Yeah. You said, and you said you may have the opportunity to re reword some of, of of it, right? Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was a ten year license, and I know I did it at the end of 2012. So I believe it's coming up at the end of this year. In the next few months, I'm going to double check. Um, but I started getting into. Um, recording audiobooks earlier this year on my own. I bought a lot of the equipment and stuff and started working on it, and then I got busy with other things. But um, that is the plan, to, to re-record Alex. Yeah, and I, I totally um, uh, encourage our listeners to go on Amazon ASAP and look at your books, and especially the first one that got all the rage, uh, raves. Um, and... Um, uh, a ghost of his dead son or visions brought on by psychosis. When I heard, when I read that synopsis, it was so amazing to me that, you know, is it real or is it something in his mind? Or mm -hmm. I want to read this. This is the one, this, I'm going to start with that book because uh, I, I uh, everybody that I've seen uh, that wrote reviews said that that book was just, you know, off the charts. I love a lot of people did love it, and one of the things that really made me feel good about it is there, there have been two or three people over the years who have lost children who wrote me or left a review and said that it was cathartic for them to read it, to work through. Yes, and, and you know what, Adam? I'm going to transit. It's a perfect segue to my next question, what you just said, okay. because um, as you know, um, we just re recently had a school shooting in Texas in Uvalde, uh, Texas, which is kind of close to the Mexican border, I think, as far as my knowledge. And um, so I want to talk a little bit how your books kind of connect, maybe could connect to that issue. Uh, do any of your novels connect in any way to the horrific school shooting that occurred in Uvalde, Texas, at the Robb Elementary School? Because they involve children who are put in precarious situations. So, um, and I think, that, you know, and this is my opinion, I don't, you could agree or disagree, those children did not have to die. There Absolutely was a, an egregious uh, um, mistake made because we had years, we had Columbine, we had um, Parkland, we had the, I, I could go on. I, don't, I can't even remember them all because, and it's sad that you even can't remember all the school shootings yeah. or shootings in general. And these politicians did absolutely nothing, not even background checks or, uh, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, uh, semi-automatic guns, which this, this kid literally is 18 years old. Mm -hmm. um, just, I think it was his birthday. He just turned 18 years old. He went into a store, bought a thousand, I think it was 1,500 rounds of ammunition. Yeah. Didn't they ask him, what are you going to do with all this stuff? And then and then he goes and kill, goes on a killing spree. I mean, you literally need, it's easier to buy Sudafed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, excuse me, easier to buy a gun than to buy Sudafed right, or right. Um, 
cigarettes and things yeah. like that. So what is your opinion of that? And just, you know, imagine I, I, there was a woman that day trying to get an abortion in Texas, too, and imagine the hurdles she faced. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's, it's appalling. I, I mean, it's just absolutely appalling. It, like, we've had to use the word appalling so often, I, like it's beginning to, you know, lose its meaning. Yes, um, it really the, is. So, but I do want to push back on this notion that the politicians did nothing. There were politicians who really, really tried. Oh, yeah. Um, and well, after Sandy Hook you know in particular. I, mean, I, I do, but I think language is important. And when we say the politicians aren't doing anything, it makes it sound like there's no hope. You know, like there is no avenue. Uh, like voting doesn't matter, et cetera. And it, that's not the case at all. Well, thank you for um, the correction. Yes. You 50, have to vote the right way. Right. And after yeah. Sandy Hook, it, they had 57 senators. And some of those were Republicans who voted to... I think it was, I don't remember, I don't even remember what they were voting on, but it was, it was a fairly large gun control bill that was, that was sorely needed after Sandy Hook. They had 57 senators in favor out of 100, and it failed. Because in the Senate, a majority by seven is not enough to pass legislation. And if Republicans want to kill bills, they can. What do you think do of the filibuster, by the way? It's ridiculous and outdated, and it needs to go away. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I agree. I understand the idea. I mean, there was a time in my life, in my history when I would have thought, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of cool that you have to have a majority, like a supermajority, right, in order to like do certain things, et cetera, et cetera. But we're well past the point of like, oh, that'd be a cool little feature of a demo of a democracy and well into the area of our democracy is paralyzed and dying because of a ridiculous, outdated Senate rule, which, by the way, has already been changed once. It used to be 67. You used, you used to need 67 to overcome a filibuster. They revised it in yes. the 60s or the 70s, I don't remember for sure, mm -hmm. down to 60. We can revise it again. It's just a Senate rule. But it's why, not in the Constitution. This is amazing to me. Why was, for example, Mitch McConnell, when he was in control of the Senate, able to say, okay, we don't need a filibuster to put Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. We don't need a filibuster to uh, put... Uh, and in, in my opinion, the man was a sexual predator. Uh, Kavanaugh. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry. I mean, if a woman is going to go through all those hoops and go mm -hmm. on t national television and reveal something so personal to her, I, mm -hmm. I can't imagine why you would think she's lying. I no, mean, and, and it was even written on his calendar. It was He brought the yes. calendar as supposed to be proof that it didn't happen, but it was on the calendar. Thank it was you. written on that day. Bingo. Yes. And... and, and, and um, and then the first one, Gorsuch, the, he was he was like the first pick of the um, what's that uh, heritage escape? was it heritage yes. So these people went through with no no problem. We can't pass gun legislation because of a filibuster. We can't pass uh, uh, child care now that women may have to be forced into having children. Mm -hmm. They 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 can't. Uh, if they can't afford it, who's going to take care of the child? Who's going to pay to put the kid through school, feed the child, uh, clothe the child, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I, I'm, I'm, I'm just scared for this country. I really am. I, I mean, am what, too. what do you feel about that? Well, I mean, you mentioned Mitch McConnell. And yes. Mitch McConnell is an extremely easy person to understand. Like, all his decisions are, are motivated by power for the Republican Party. And the vision that he has for this country of heading towards the theocracy you talked about before. Yes. I am so tired of hearing people be like, oh, well, this, you know, it's an election year. So this time they, they won't be able to buy the rules that Mitch McConnell made. They can't vote for a Supreme Court justice or this rule or that rule. There are no rules. Right. Mitch McConnell will do. they break them all the time. Well, yes. And we don't. Yeah, we're still pretending that, you know, there's a set of rules that both sides have agreed to abide by, and there isn't. No. They don't abide by the rules. They got rid of the filibuster so fast, everybody's head spun. The second mm -hmm. he got into office, that was the entire goal. Mm -hmm. And if they want to do, for example, a national ban on abortion, he'll get rid of the legislative filibuster like that. He mm -hmm. won't hesitate. All this talk that we're having right now about, you know, just like wringing our hands and oh but the filibuster and oh tradition and everything else and he, he talks out of both sides of his mouth all the time he does what he needs to do to install the theocracy that's his goal that's how he operates and if you watch him every single action he takes lines up to that i am tired of the media pretending that oh well mitch mcconnell has to abide by what he said before he doesn't he's my least favorite politician even even worse than trump because i feel he could do things. He could make things happen, and he doesn't. For example, 
with, with the second impeachment trial, he, <laughs> were you angry as I was when after he voted to let Trump go free? Because mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of Republicans who were like, let's put this, let's make yeah. sure this guy never gets near the White House again because he can, he, he, he wants to be Putin Jr., you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he turned around and voted to let him go, to mm -hmm. say, oh, it's not a big deal. And then then has the nerve, after, right after that, to get on the podium and say, the man is, you know, you know, was wrong and this and that, and, but we, you know, you have to um, use the vote. You know, you have to, uh, right. and you have to go to um, courts and let the courts handle that. And all these, all this miscellaneous baloney. Exactly. Um, uh, it infuriated me. Did it infuriate you yeah, as I'm well? infuriated constantly By every him. moment of every day. Uh, like, not yeah. just him. Just because everything. he wouldn't be an issue right now if McConnell impeached, uh, 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 voted uh uh, to get him removed forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, if McConnell had wanted him impeached, he would have been impeached. It, convicted. He was impeached twice. Yeah, he was impeached if he wanted right, him yeah. to be convicted, he would have been convicted. Mitch McConnell has that power. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And it's not about, I, I don't like to frame it as what he didn't do or what he decided not to do. It's all deliberate choice. Everything he does, he's doing on purpose for a reason, mm -hmm. even when he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, the one thing that I will say about Mitch McConnell is he's a brilliant politician, much to my chagrin. I mean, he's absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Like watching him dismount from the Trump train and stick a perfect landing when uh, January 6th happened was, it, it was just breathtaking in its audacity and its temerity. Um, but, but he knows, he knows exactly who Trump is. He knows exactly what having him around, uh, how it's a danger to the country. Um, but you know, he cares about, like I said, the theocracy and he cares about his own career. Yeah, and the scary um, thing is, I, I, if Trump does get the nomination again, which God forbid that happens, because that would really destroy this country and divide it even more, he would support him. Yeah, I'm sure he would. Of course. If that's yeah. the Republican nominee, he tells the Republican line. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that's scary. I have another question about your uh, your books as well. Um, how would you compare? Well, okay. So th this is I, I like this question because I this was my little concoction. <laughs> I, I when I read all your um, reviews, the first two people that came to my mind were Dean Koons, the writer, the author, and Stephen King. And I read about a lot of both of them growing now, up. Now, what do you do? You what are your similarities to them and differences? Would you say? Um, well, Stephen King. Every writer who ever touches horror is going to be compared or contrasted with Stephen King. Oh, he's like the king, that, yes. Yes. Um, and, you know, I've, I've read reviews that talk about, from people I don't know, to be clear, uh, that are like, that compare me favorably to Stephen King or with Stephen King. And that's obviously very um, great. Like, that's there's no person oh my who God. would want to see that. Oh, yeah. But, um, like, authors in general tend to be very humble in my opinion, or particularly self-published authors. Um, and I can't, I, I would never sit here and say that I'm as good as Stephen King, like ever in a million years. Um, but there's a ton of, of his writing style that I emulate without even thinking about, you know, um, kind of like, like one of the things that I really love about his style is just kind of the insertion of just little points of absurd humor into horrific situations. Uh -huh. Um, and I can't even think of an example off the top of my head, but it just like, you know, when when everything is going badly, absurd things happen. Um, and he'll point them out and they'll just be, you know, part of the prose and it'll just keep rolling. And it's all just, it just emphasizes it and makes it feel more real um, because that's how life is, you know. Um, so I really like that. And his, his style of um, narrative, like, I don't want to say folksy, but like really down to earth and kind of colloquial um, is good too. Like I think it, it really pulls you in. It, and, and when and when we uh, talk about Dean Coons, did you ever read the Demon Seed? Um, I never read that one. Um, I haven't read Dean Coons 
recently. I wasn't allowed to read it because it was it was written in 1973. I was only 13, so there was no way I could read that. But I remember how uh, people were like bugged out by that book. I mean, I remember like oh, the demons. You know, um, it, 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 it's a. Um, I have I have read it since. And it's, I, I just, I don't want to say a word about it because I think people should just pick up that book too. It's just crazy. I mean, um, what did you, did you read the book or? Uh, I didn't read that one. Um, did you read any of his stuff at all? When I, like I said, when I was younger, it's like when I was reading Tommyknockers when I was in middle school and, and high school, um, I read some Dean Koontz. I remember I read The Mask. I read my mom's books, so and she read a lot of horror. Yeah. So they were all around the house, so I would grab them and read them. The one other thing I want to mention, though, um, is Joe Hill, um, The Heart-Shaped Box. Uh, the first book I wrote was Children of a Broken Sky, the fantasy book. Um, I wrote it and revised it and revised it again and revised it again over the course of about 10 years. Right. Um, and then I started submitting it to agents and you know getting shot down constantly, because that's what an agent search is. Um, and so I was going through that process for about a year. And then during that time, I read Heart Shaped Box by Joe Hill, and who was Stephen King's son, obviously. Um, right. And I couldn't put it down. Like, like, I literally was just compelled to keep reading it constantly. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, huh? No, not at all. <laughs> and I was looking at it, um, and I was like, okay, why? Like, that was the first book that I really analyzed, and I was like, what is he doing that makes it so hard to put down? Um, and it was basically, it was really short, punchy chapters and really short, punchy prose, mm. you know, and it was just straight to the point, snap, snap, snap over and over and right on to the next thing. And I was like, I was starting to have this idea for Alex, like it was coming to me in the car on the way home from work. And I just started writing. I was like, I'm, I'm taking that style and this idea and I'm going to put them together. And I wrote the first chapter and I wrote like the first five chapters and I was like, this is this is totally different. Like it's just, if you read my fantasy books and my my horror books, the it, there's a severe contrast in writing style, and that used to bother me, but now I'm I'm more okay with it because fantasy, especially epic fantasy, tends to be kind of more Tolkien-esque, right? Like kind of more deep diving, and um, it's okay to like be a little more flowery with your language and stuff like that. But that's not what I do in my horror at all, um, and that's not what Joe Hill did in his book. So I just bring that up when you mention those names because he was a huge influence on me. And weirdly, I have never read another book of his. I have a couple of them at home that I've just never gotten around to. I guess I felt like Heart-Shaped Box was so good, I just wanted to stop there. Oh, wow. Oh, so my final question before we do the shift, um, I'll, I'll tell my listeners what that is in a second, but um, I've read that you talk about something called extinction-level events. Now, can you describe this phenomenon or give examples? What do you mean by that? So I'm a big armchair scientist, um, armchair physicist, armchair um, biologist, uh, by which I mean I'll read like pop science books um, and I'll read, like I've watched Cosmos. Um, I'll watch a lot of like um, the more serious documentaries kind of aimed at some of this stuff. And that's where I learned the notion. I'm pretty sure I learned it from Cosmos, but it's an extinction level event. Extinction level event is something that is global that results in a massive die off of species. Like the bubonic plague. Uh, the bubonic plague was not an extinction level event, I don't think, because oh, no? I don't think so. And again, armchair, uh, amateur. Uh, but did we ever have one close to it? Globally? Mm -hmm. Yes. Humanity? No. Like humanity, I don't think has lived through one. But the planet has lived through multiples of them. Like there was a time on the planet where, and I might get I might get this wrong because again I didn't I didn't prep for this, but the basic idea is the atmosphere was composed in almost entirely of of something else. I don't remember if it was carbon dioxide or if it was um, nitrogen, but like basically there was a. Uh, Oh my God, this is going to be so horrible because I'm, I'm just riffing off of what I heard. I didn't <laughs> you're, prep. You're I'm going to sound like one of these crazy <laughs> anti-science people. But there was basically, there was like a bacteria in the ocean that since this element was so uh, everywhere, omnipresent in the air, it, mm -hmm. it was breathing that and it was exhaling oxygen. And it basically annihilated itself by converting the entire atmosphere of the planet. And it, it 
was a massive amount of the life on the planet at the time, and it was all wiped out, except for like some of it that lives like way down deep in the ocean now. And then all the um, life on the planet that was dependent on whatever that previous element was that I can't recall off the top of my head, that also died off. So it was an extinction level event is a global event where upwards of 50, 60, 70% of species on the planet die. Okay. Well, see, um, I, I didn't know what your definition was, and that's why I wanted to ask, because I, my follow-up question would have been, now I know the answer, but my follow-up question would have been, had I, uh, because I thought it meant something else, would have been, do you think climate change is a, uh, falls into that category? But I guess it wouldn't, because there would be some surviving people, uh, well, but not many. But there Maybe. No, we don't know for sure that humanity is going to survive climate change. Oh, we don't. Climate change is, is absolutely an ELE, or at least it has the potential to be an ELE. Like if we don't um, cap emissions, curb emissions, and this planet turns into Venus, that's game over. Okay, Venus so I has, guess I was right. <laughs> no, you were right. Uh, okay. Venus has so much CO2 in the atmosphere that it's unlivable. Mm-hmm. And this planet has the potential to have a similar atmosphere. It, it can happen. It, ha- it has had a similar atmosphere in the past, mm-hmm. according to like geological records, we've seen it, um, and it could happen again. Um, oh, like, isn't it, that scary? It's again mortally terrifying. I think um, about that, I, and I think, and I worry more for you because you have children. I don't have children. I'm I'm an old guy here. You know, I uh, I don't have any offspring to worry about. But I do worry about people that do have children and what the world will be like. Will there be floods all the time? Will there be tornadoes knocking towns, complete cities out? I mean, we don't know what the result is going to be. And um, we have to come up with something. I mean, uh, what do you think of... uh, Some people are are talking about nuclear energy as a way of... uh, Because it doesn't spew... um, any toxins that would do cause climate change? What is your opinion of nuclear energy and its um, value? Well, I'm, I'm getting kind of desperate. <laughs> so, well, yeah, so that's what I, I'm, I'm kind of in the boat of as long as it doesn't spew methane or CO2, we need to be doing it. Yeah. Um, nuclear obviously has its risks, but it's a lot safer than it the was. Waste. The waste, the, the, the disposing the waste is the problem. So the waste is a big problem. Maybe the, putting a, maybe uh, cordoning off an area where we just put that, you know, waste and... I, I don't I mean, I, I'm not this. I don't know either. The but it's, uh, the one thing I will say is the human species got ourselves into this mess and we can get ourselves out. Like sure. we, we are very smart um, as a species. I see new ideas like every week or every other week, right? About like ways we can convert nuclear waste into an energy source or ways we can, you know, change the diet of cows so that they don't produce so much methane. There's like some kind of pink algae or something they found that reduced it by like no 90%. Way, really? oh, God. And, you know, and how much of this is just, you know, it's the internet, right? How much of it is hearsay and how much of it is real, but I have to believe some of it is real. Like, I believe we have the capacity to solve this problem we just have to do it. Yeah. Um, we so, have to put our minds to it and we have to be serious about it because right now, uh, again, when it comes to this, this one party, I hate to keep going back to that, that's just in, you know, in denial, you know, and uh, all they say is drill, baby, drill, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and nothing's going to get done if, if, if we don't start putting our nose to the grindstone and say, you know what, this planet is worth we need to save it. We need well, to do something. Yeah, and remember when I said um, that the everyday people who don't think about this stuff start getting smacked in the face by this stuff. Climate change is smacking people in the face. Oh, like yeah. The floodings, the hurricanes. Oh, yeah. Um, and there are, and a lot of it is happening in southern states. And a lot of these folks are waking up to the fact that, no, it's real. It's been real this whole time. And the threat is now on your doorstep. Yes. And there are, there's a... a sector of the population in this country that, you know, don't take things seriously until it is actually threatening them. Um, and that sector is now being threatened. Yeah. So I had a friend of mine even said, you know, climate change is going to affect Florida the most, which is the most ironic thing because oh, yeah. it's the most, uh, it's the population of Florida tends to think that it's not important. Uh, climate change is not an issue and they're the ones that are going to suffer the most. So it's most kind of that of peninsula ironic. is going to be underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now we've come to the part of the show I'd like to call The Shift, where I shift the questioning away from your career and your books and a discussion of 
your opinions on current events. Okay, is that okay with you? Yeah, that'd be and, great. And we're running, oh my God, I could talk to you forever. You're just so interesting. Um, oh, thank uh, this you. This is gonna be a long one, but um, normally I usually try to keep it at least to 45 minutes. We're almost at an hour, so a little less than an hour, but I'm just gonna bring up a couple of issues really quick and have you get a quick answer to each, maybe like the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. okay. Book banning. Now you're an author, so what are your thoughts about this? I, I don't. I, I probably know the answer, but <laughs> well, if I'm going to break the rule about a brief response, I'm going to do it on this one. Yeah. The, the one thing I like book banning is yet another appalling uh, thing that we are seeing from the burgeoning theocratic movement in this country. Yeah. Um, the but one thing I want to point out is that I, I just want to mention this because one thing that bothers me is when we see things happening on one side, but we don't acknowledge it happening on the other side. And this happens on the left too. Um, and in fact, I just saw an example of it the other day and it was, and it's right after Evaldi and it's, it's, nobody wants to hear this or think about this, but there's a book and I don't remember who wrote it, but it's by Scholastic and it's aimed at elementary school mm -hmm. kids and middle school kids. Um, and it's a horror story. It's YA horror about a kid who goes to the bathroom and a lockdown drill happens and all the doors get locked and she can't get back into her classroom and then she finds out that it's not a drill, it's real and there's somebody in the hallway and this kid is trapped in the hall. And somebody was like, this is appalling, scholastic, how dare you carry this book? And I was like, of course they're writing horror about this. Of course kids are interested it's in happening. horror about this. Yeah. This is their life. Yeah. That, that's what horror is for, is to work through the things yeah. that terrify you. I agree. I'm not angry about the existence of the book. I'm angry at the existence of the system that prompted the writing of the book. Like, that's what we need to correct. Mm -hmm. um, and I would hate to see that book taken off. Like, if you see that that book exists and it turns your stomach, great. Mm. That means you need to get involved. Not with banning the book, with banning the guns. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely, bingo. Um, I think, um, and this relates to book banning, in my opinion, um, you know, the don't say gay bill. I don't know the name of the, the real, I don't want to use the real name because it's, it's basically don't say gay. Yeah, it is. Um, there, I remember growing up, there was a book called Heather Has Two Mommies. It was a book about this young girl who has not a mom and a dad or one mom or one dad or grandma. She's got two mommies. And the furor, people's veins were coming out of their neck. They were so angry that Heather had two mommies was a book that you could buy for your children. What do you, mm. what? Uh, this is about, I, I this is about the right to exist. It's, mm. it's, it's about whether Heather's family with two mothers in it has the right to be acknowledged. Thank you. In reality. It's a reality. Not. It's not a fantasy. Yes. Yeah. It's it's not pushing an agenda. Yes. It, what it's doing is acknowledging and it exists whether or not that book is written or not. The, the question is not are we going to, you know, push this idea on people? The question is are we going to acknowledge that people live like this? This is a normal way for families to But there are a lot of Heathers out there. Adam. There are. And don't don't these Heathers, I'm going to use that expression, uh, need validation to say that their family's worth something? And, Absolutely. I mean, so th why is this book a problem for some people? Because it, again, goes back to what you said before about the um, evangelical or the uh, theocratic The theocratic mindset. kind of, yeah. Yeah, right? Um, yeah, and I mean, a lot of it comes out of that Religion. I mean, the, I grew up that way, and my mom was a Me lesbian. Um, was she? Yes, and still is. Um, <laughs> so, but I, I, um, <laughs> I, okay. I found that out. Uh, well, I don't want to embarrass my mom, so I'm not going to say the exact. Yeah, way I found it out. Fun. But um, <laughs> basically, I found that out when I was as evangelical fundamentalist as I've ever been in my right, life, right, right. At, like around 11 or 12. And I remember that I confronted her. And I was like, you know, I still love you, but you know, if you thought I was upset about you smoking, you haven't seen anything yet because I'm like, oh, wow. really upset about this. Um, and you know, I don't think this is right, and whatever else. Right. And to her eternal credit, um, we did not get in a shouting match. Um, I mean, she just—I don't know that she made a conscious decision to do this, but she proved to me that it was fine just by living her life, by living the example. 
Right. You know, I always had a place to live. I always had food. We were dirt poor. And so for those things to be true, uh, took some doing. And she went out of her way to do all that for you guys, right? Yes. And I actually, I, my grandparents, the fundamental evangelical ones, um, actually tried to adopt me when I was very young. And she... And take her away, take you away from your mom? Yes. Oh, no. Um, in fact, when I was like really young, like two or three, I thought she was my older sister. That's what they called her. When she would come to visit, that's what they said. Um, and there came a point where my mom couldn't stand it anymore. And she brought me home. My grandmother always told me, you know, and she kept allowed me to have a relationship with them. But growing up, my grandma always said, she took you away from us. And that's always the words that I want to say. But she didn't. She brought me home. This is very I upsetting was, to me because I, I, I anyway, I, I can go into my personal life myself and how I relate to that. But I, I just want to say, God bless her. Yeah. You know, um, and the next issue I was going to bring up was abortion. And again, these seem to all have a. A common denominator, which is religion. You know, I mean, abortion. It, 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 there's nothing in the Bible that says, you know, when you're when you when the um, when the sperm meets the egg. They didn't even know about sperm and eggs. <laughs> they didn't yes. even know about monocellular organisms. <laughs> it's actually doesn't Genesis say something about uh, life begins at the first breath? Uh, that's what that's, I heard. That's what I've heard. Something in the Bible. It's been a long time I'm since a, I read the I'm Bible. I'm not a biblical scholar or anything, but that's what I heard from someone that brought that up and so if it's biblical maybe you should think you should use that as the um uh, but it gets back to my point it's not biblical it's not because they don't really take um their their views from the bible they pick and choose oh absolutely Um, oh you don't have to tell me that no i know (laughs) Uh, but the other thing is too that i like to avoid falling into the trap of debating what the bible says i don't give a damn what the bible says yeah. It has nothing to and do. And there are people that don't re, uh, believe in the Bible. So if we're a, a nation of freedom of religion, quote unquote, or non, or, or whether you believe in religion or don't believe in anything, you should have the freedom to express that. And I, I think people should uh, that think, you know, life begins at conception. I don't know where they got that from. I mean, that's just, I, I have still yet to find anywhere in the Bible where it talks about the sperm and the egg meeting, and that's where life, I really, anyway, but it's, I know it sounds bizarre to you, and that's why I'm laughing, because I, I, I find this stuff hilarious, I just do, I just think, I always felt Christianity in its proper form is about love, Caring for the sick, because Jesus did that in the Bible. Cared for the sick, helped the poor. He he would have been a raging liberal today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? And that's actually that's part of what drove you know? me out of the religion is because those were the pieces of it that I loved the they most. They bastardized the religion that I was yep. proud of the most. And I just became aware. It was after the Iraq War, and there were all these people that were like, you know, here we go. Let let's kill them all. Whatever else, there was no evidence right? for it. I was like, why are we doing this? Like that was the first Death major crack. Is another one too, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're killing somebody. You know, why is it okay to kill a person because they, um, you think they, and nobody really had any idea in those days. There was no DNA testing. You know, uh, I remember they would were killing people just, and then they found out they didn't do it afterwards, right. and so they killed this person. Yeah. But that was okay. But an embryo, nope, can't get rid of that. Anyway, but I just find that amazing. I'm down to my last two subjects when Gail okay. was done. I love, I love talking to you. I'm sorry. I could just go on and on and on. That was a good it's, time. Yeah, you're amazing. Um, well, so are you. The, well, but thank, thank you. Ukraine. Yeah. Another one religion-based to me. You have these people trying to live their life, you know, who are, and on the right is where that there's the problem. They don't think we should be helping these people. Um, what is your opinion of that? Do you think these people should be helped or should we just keep let them bomb the hell out of them and kill all their children? And what's your opinion? I mean, I don't know. The, Ukraine is, it's a very uh, open and shut issue and it's a very complex issue at the same time. It sure is. Yeah. Um, it's open and shut in the sense that Ukraine is a sovereign nation that stands alone um, that is now being invaded by a national superpower. Um, and that's wrong. And it shouldn't happen. And we did the same, though. And that's where it, beget, where it gets gray, See, that's right? Where it we did the exact gray. same thing. We did that in Iraq. We did. 
And we Which never had nothing have. to do with 9 11. <laughs> nothing to do with it. Everything, everything to do with George W. Bush's grudges. But. So we can't talk, right? I guess. We have to talk. No, so. No, I mean, we can't be the, we, um, so the, the holier lose, than thou anymore because we did the same thing. So, yeah. you know, it's sad. We, lo- we lose our credibility. That's the point I'm making, yeah. But that doesn't mean that we can't do anything or that we need to not do anything. No, we have to help the people. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not, it just, it makes things much more difficult. Yes. Um, yep. And, you know, I was at the time, um, I was very much in favor of uh, war crimes trials for the people who began that war here. Like there was no reason why that shouldn't have been prosecuted under the same terms. It violated the terms of the law. It was based on a lie. It was acknowledged to have been based on a lie. And I still feel that way. And so for, you know, for my part, I've always felt that way. I don't feel a, um, an internal dissonance about that. Um, So for me personally, Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine is abhorrent um, and they deserve our help. Yes. And what's happening there is, is God awful. Yeah. Um, well, I do want to, I do just want to mention, I do think there's a lot more support for helping Ukraine on the right though, uh, than on some of these other issues. I think there's a, a lot more overlap, um, there. And I, I don't know exactly why that is. Um, I think there's also more support for Russia's side of it on the right than there is on the left. That's the thing that bothers me, though. I, I think sovereign nations, we have to, otherwise we're just going to have war constantly. We have to um, recognize sovereign nations. We have to recognize their borders. And we can't feel that we have the right to just go into somebody's country and just kill their people. I mean, right. I'm sorry. I mean, no. But anyway, um, I, we've been we've been going really long. But I'm just I just want to thank you for coming, um, and I'm sure my listeners are fascinated by you. I mean, I, I your books, your your opinions, your um, um, everything that you stand for as far as this country's concerned. Uh, uh, I just want to thank you for coming, and maybe we could do this again in the future and. Uh, talk about other things that maybe you may have on your mind that we haven't gotten to. How's that? That would be wonderful. And thank you yeah. very much for having me on. You're welcome. And, uh, and as far as the Downright Upright show today, we'd like to conclude with, um, uh, we, we were trying to be putting out some of these podcasts on a regular basis. Um, um, I have a um, few other interviews coming uh, lined up. So uh, we'll be doing those, and um, I hope you you all tune in in the future. And thank you for being a part of this again, Adam. And um, have a wonderful um, summer. You too. Enjoy the Minnesota summer. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thank you all out there for coming and choosing to listen to us today. Thank you. Mm-hmm.